Welcome to Sci-Fi Tech Talk, the podcast where we explore the technology of sci-fi. I'm Julie Keel, and with me today I have, well, my co-host, Jeff Sire. Hello, everyone. And we have another Jeff who was a previous guest, Jeff Gamet. This shouldn't be confusing at all. No. So it's the Jeff and Jeff and Julie show, so triple J or J cubed or whatever you want to call it. This must be some scientific equation that involves, you know, J. But, um, yeah. We were um, going to have a larger group with us uh, tonight to talk about Doctor Who, but as things, life interferes occasionally, plans got changed. So we're just going to have a, a kind of a roundtable between the three of us and talk about, uh, take a little different tack tonight too. Rather than picking a show or a, a book or, you know, a story, we're going to just talk about a technology and how it's portrayed in various sci-fi stories. For instance, we're going to start with the idea of shipped to shore transport. Um, for instance, you know, you have shuttlecraft in Star Trek. You have, oh, well, you've kind of got, I don't know if they're shipped ashore, but you have like pod racers in the Star Wars um, world. And so some of those more local craft as opposed to the hyperdrives and interstellar spacecraft. Going to look at the at the more um, local um, type of things, heaters even perhaps. So it's interesting because... Um, I can't remember what was coming up, in what context it was, but somebody was talking about jetpacks. The idea that we have all so much of the science fiction uh, technology has actually come to pass, but where in the heck are our jetpacks and our hover cars? Um, so they, we actually do have them, um, but they're just not widely available or widely used, and they're certainly not cheap. So this issue of, of local transport seems, well, we haven't cracked interstellar transport too well yet either, but um, anybody who's traveled by plane lately um, will know that we're all anxious to move on to things that will um, transport us more efficiently, more quickly. <coughs> and I'm going to apologize here. If my voice hangs on through this and I don't go off into a complete coughing fit, it'll be a good night. But, um, you know, some of the different assumptions um, that go into to local transport. Um, and I'm just going to start with the shuttlecraft because it's the first one that comes to mind, the Star Trek shuttlecraft. Um, you know, you got the shuttlecraft bays. It, it can go through. We've seen the shuttlecraft endure a heck of a lot of different environments. I mean, I think it went through the sun some sun someplace, but it's it's basically meant for, you know, an orbiting ship to use um, to get to to transport people it's or goods. It's a device they use when the transporter can't be used for some reason. Right, and, and you know, Bones, McCoy, was infamous. He didn't like transporters, and, and in the first season, I think, you know, basically he was exclusively for shuttle. I mean, there, there was always an issue where he didn't like to have his molecules jumbled up, and so he preferred trans or shuttle tra- craft. But um, it's it was amazing with all of the technology that they had, like transporters and hyper, you know, warp drive and whatever, that there was still a place for a shuttlecraft. How do these shuttlecrafts work in nope. Star Trek? Like, I know that uh, I I can't remember about uh, the later series, but in the original series, I know they have the two. Um, I don't know what you call them pods on the side that are supposed to kind of mimic. 
um, the, the warp nacelles, but I don't know if they work off of the same drive. I don't know if they ever say in the series or anything. They actually do. Uh-oh. Okay, so so uh, you you learn a lot about shuttlecraft technology in uh, in the Galileo Seven, and uh, so so basically what you have is uh, an impulse engine, and that's the 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 strip of of lights that are across the back of the shuttlecraft, and the nacelles on the side are actually chemical rockets. Oh, okay. and uh, yeah, and. So the uh, the fuel cells that drive the shuttlecraft, uh, you know, in in that episode, the, those are are completely drained during the the landing process on on whatever that planet was that they hit, and so they end up using phaser packs to to try and get enough of uh, of a charge back on the fuel cells so they can lift off, and uh, and then once they got back up. To a low orbit, and they were pretty much screwed because it didn't have enough uh, thrust to to uh, to break out of orbit. That's when they chose to fire the chemical rockets, which also acted as a beacon. Hence, how the Enterprise was able to locate them. Hmm. Now, when you get into into Next Generation, by that point, they actually have a compact warp drive built into the shuttles so so they can go warp speed but i think i'm trying to remember because i remember there was in some episode there was something about maximum speeds and it was like warp three or warp four so they can't go nearly as fast as a starship but you can get uh, faster than light speed by the time you get to the next generation era. You know, and what's interesting too is when I think of the shuttlecraft, I think of this box with, you know, like pontoons on the side. Um, you know how they came up with that design? How? All right, so when uh, they, when, when Paramount was getting ready to actually do sh- the shuttlecraft, the first episode with the shuttlecraft, which I think may have actually been Galileo 7. Um, they had a marketing deal with with AMT, the model making company. They do the cars and the airplanes and all that. And so, so AMT said, "We will design that uh, that ship piece for you guys, and uh, and, we'll, and we'll even help fund build it. But we get to set what that design is." And so what they did was they created a design that fit generally with the look of, of the rest of the Star Trek technology, but designed it in such a way that it was very low cost for them to build as a model. Lots of big, flat surfaces. Yes. And there you go. That's how we ended up with that original shuttlecraft design. You know, the uh, it's not the shuttle. The shuttlecraft... The shuttlecraft was recently purchased. Um, the the prop was recently purchased, um, and and is in the hands of fans basically. Um, and they're going to try and restore it. But basically, the, the the prop itself, you know, basically sat in somebody's backyard for you know a decade or two, and really started rotting pretty bad. So, you know, people who actually know what it's going to take to restore it really didn't have much hope of. Of it, you know, of them, of it being able to be, you know, 
restored, but I, I have the feeling that it will be as good as possible, uh, given given who actually purchased the thing. I can't remember what did it go for like seven hundred dollars. No, no, uh, too many things I, blurring I together. Just heard it had been sold recently. I heard it was in really bad shape too. Yeah, it was, and and like I say, people in the know were thinking that you know there really wasn't much hope for it, but. It, it was interesting that some of the materials that were used to make the prop were so, um, well, you can look at the shows. Cheap, chintzy, you know, cardboard and, you know. Well, they didn't have big budgets. No, not at well, all. Have either of you been on a TV set? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Like, the props are nothing like you would think. Like, they're not made to be functional. They're, they're made to be as functional as they have to be. Uh, like I was on one set where they had like a prison scene, and all the bars were just wooden dowels. The whole it was just a a, a wooden set of bars that they just put in a hallway and then just kind of tacked it in place, and it had been painted to look like metal, but it wasn't metal at all. And the flooring, like it was the uh, where they were shooting, it was just an old warehouse, and with a like a hard you know, polished cement surface, and all of the flooring was painted on. So they had plank wood floors that were all painted. Like, yeah, nothing is, yeah. I can totally see why, yeah, the Galileo was just made out of plywood and just particle board and crap. Well, and it's interesting that you talk about movie sets and and props like that, too. Um, It's all, it's certainly nothing you would want to jump in and, you know, take out of orbit <laughs> or um which actually is the same exact feeling i had when i saw the apollo capsules at the air and space museum in, in washington dc it's like you kidding me you want me to crawl in that and you know go to the moon so <laughs> it's really um the, the the idea of of um local transport ship to shore whatever you want to call it i suppose it's like cars you know um the, the basic functions are pretty basic. I mean, think about like speeders and from Star Wars. Um, the the one of the opening scenes of that uh, movie, uh, Episode Four, is Luke tinkering with the speeder. Um, yeah, he has the hood up. And yeah, on his car. Basically, that's it. Yep. Um, so one of the I think the hallmarks of um, uh, local transport vehicles is that they're easy to they're they're simple they're they're easy to fix because i can think of numerous star trek episodes too where they're stranded on some some moon or some world and they have you know they crash landed and they're trying to piece this and that together to make it uh, uh you know functional again and it's it, it you know it, it really is kind of like the car of the future um and we, which is interesting because at least in our current society, especially here in America and Canada, um, that we consider cars to be individual items. I mean, almost everybody has their own car. And I'm the one who doesn't, okay? So let me just put that out there. I'm the only one who doesn't have a car. But, um, but you do have a, uh, a vehicle that does fit into your personality. This is true. Um, but it, it's it's basically on an individual basis. Um, there are some movements towards making cars um, community property, but when you think about in sci-fi, almost all of the cars are community property. Even Luke's speeder is kind of like the family car. Um, the the shuttlecraft is certainly you know you, you check it out. Um, you you um, you know sign up and 
wait your turn to to take its places or you're you're assigned it basically so it there's not that whole i can't think can you guys think of any place that, where they've got that you know partly a function of most sci-fi is this kind of utopian society like you don't see a whole lot of most sci-fi is more focused on us as a race going forward it's not like uh, it's not the homesteader kind of sci-fi of uh, there is a, a bit there are some things that are like that but most sci-fi is us going forward as a race or members of a uh, multi-race thing where we're going forward and exploring there's very few kind of Grizzly Adams type sci-fi stories where I'm a settler uh, or a homesteader on this planet. So that kind of uh, vision leads to the kind of communal stuff, right? You know, and I'm thinking of Blade Runner as you were talking that, which is the opposite. That's more of the dystopian future. And one of the things that we wrestle with even now is the idea that if everybody has their own private transport, you got gridlock, you got pollution, you got, you know, crowded, you got space issues, whatever. And some of the, well, uh, Jeff uh, Sire, um, that Metropolis that we reviewed way back when, um, one of some of the scenes in there were about, you know, elevated highways and the fact that there were very few vehicles on them and whatever. Um, so, you know, taking it to the other side is uh, like Blade Runner where it's, or even some scenes in Star Wars, I'm thinking of Corsicant, where um, you got 3D highways, you know, in the air. You got uh, gridlock over, I don't know, 10,000 feet um, vertical. Uh, and but even then, if I'm thinking of um, even Blade Runner and Star Wars, you basically kind of take your vehicle where you want it to go, and then you hop out, and the vehicle just kind of disappears. It's not like you park it, you know. There's no garages in the future. Well, okay, you give up garages in the future in some of the of the stories, but in others. Your garage is more like a uh, docking port on the side of a building, yeah. and uh, so uh, uh, Fifth Element. That, yeah, that's a perfect yeah, exactly. Example. True, and you know, a big old parking garage, basically. I suppose I, it. It just seems like they're they're even in some of those dystopian ones. It's more like you know, take it if you need it and park it here, and you know, there'll be another one there whenever you come back and you know want to pick it up. So it's an interesting, I mean, because especially in America, we're so dependent on cars. Um, it just, it you know, your identity almost is wrapped up around cars. So um, the idea that they're just kind of these services, you know, it's it's just truly transport. Um, is is kind of it's it's actually that's kind of a theme. The only the the one exception to that sticking out in my mind is pod racing. Um, the pod racers from Star Wars are obviously home-built, um, tinkering type of hot rod. It's my vehicle. I know it. I built it. Type of thing. And that's you don't. I don't know. I I don't see that in a lot of science fiction. Okay. How about Battlestar Galactic? Okay. Fine. I knew you'd come up with that one. <laughs> And yeah, and especially and how about throw Firefly in that mix as well? Well, okay, and Firefly might be an even better example. Um, Battlestar Galactic. The first one I thought of when I was saying that was the Cylon Raider that Starbuck managed to crawl into, literally, um, like a tauntaun. And um, 
figure out how to operate. Outside. Yeah. But, I totally threw you with that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the um, as much as there's a well, and see that's kind of the pilot. I'm thinking of Battlestar Galactica and the uh, Vipers, um, where the pilot has a connection with their machine, their their plane, we'd call it, their Viper. Um, but they don't maintain it. I mean, you have to turn it over to the, the mechanics. Um, I think the, it's modeled after a, like a, an aircraft carrier flight deck. Yeah, it's a it's a... It's a uh, military, you know, we, we, we've got, we used to have uh, fighter jets running out of here. And it's the same thing there. Yes, the pilot has a relationship with their plane. Without a doubt, they know it inside and out. But they don't, like, decorate it. You know, they might put a sticker on the front. They might paint something. They might put some stars for, you know, f- flights or combat missions or whatever. But um, I guess in times of war they kind of do, don't they? They do kind of personalize their their uh, cockpits or whatever. But um, it's just, it just seems, uh, yeah. But it's still not personal property. Yeah, it, it's it's an interesting idea that that um, ships become group property or, or shared. I guess. Well, okay, the the. Series or storylines, whatever, that you see ships as group property, I think tend to lean more towards a military-style future. So, Battlestar Galactica, uh, Star Trek. Buck Rogers. Yep. Buck Rogers. Yeah, series like that. Uh, Space 1999. Even Blade Runner. Community property because it's part of the military organization. When you move over to series like Firefly or... Or, um, um, crap, I just had another one in my head. Mm. That would be a, a really great example, and it's gone. So we'll stick with Firefly for the moment. Um, well, actually, even in Star Wars, because when you're dealing with the people outside of the military organization, they tend to be people that have their own ships, or they have to find someone that has one because they can't afford their own. And, uh, and, and I will toss Han Solo and the Millennium Falcon out as an example of that. Yeah, I was going to say that, boy, there's the big one we are totally missing. The Millennium oh, Falcon. Worry. I was going to make sure we got to that. Yeah, the Millennium Falcon is certainly the exception to everything I've been saying. Oh, my gosh. Han Solo can take that thing apart, knows it upside down, inside out. Um, it is his baby. It is personalized. He's got special cargo holds on it. He he knows when it goes. He knows every sound that it makes. Um, boy, yeah, that would be... The exception to the rule. This is why we like Han Solo so much. Um, now, see, I like Han Solo first because he did shoot first. <laughs> because he has the cool ship and he knows how to use it. And third, when it came time for him to, to really step up to the plate mm-hmm. and, uh, and he sacrificed himself to save his friends, which was a major transition for for. The character. Yep. He was still cool enough that when Leia said, I love you, he could come back with, I know. I, know. I mean, holy crap. You can't get cooler than that. Yep. Yep. He was like James Dean from another you know, generation or another universe. From another galaxy. Yep. Long, long ago and far, far away. There you go. And the- he has the coolest co-pilot ever. 
He does, although I'm sure his co-pilot needs regular brushing or he gets hairballs. <laughs> a, little, a little grooming. I wonder how they vacuum that out of the Millennium Falcon. I think you just every now and then uh, uh, put on a uh, spacesuit and then just open the airlock mm-hmm. and let it suck all the oxygen out and the hair with it. There you and go. Repressurize and can I do that with my house? That that'd be really darn cool. Um, but yeah, the the uh, and one of the things I think that. I was going to talk about that relationship you have with with vehicles. I mean, you certainly see that with um, the Battlestar Galactica Viper pilots. They have, uh, you know, again, if your life depends on something, you probably have a relationship with it um, of some sort, you know. But you know, the other one that's coming to mind here, and I don't, why well, it fits into science fiction, Mad Max. Um, the the whole way that those vehicles were. Personalized. Um, they were still group property, though. But they were, they definitely um, got got some attention. They they were, um, you know, pieced together from scraps here, there, and everywhere. And so they they were, they they def- they were defined both by the the people that were building them and the circumstances that they were building them in, and of course the purposes they were building them for. Um, but the the um, it, it, it's interesting that the the um, I don't know when you do that kind of stuff you get uh, invested in your machine um, and some of the like a shuttlecraft you know a Star Trek shuttlecraft it crashes on a, on a uh, moon of some planet somewhere and as long as they can communicate they're pretty pretty cool with just you know beaming the the people out and leaving the shuttlecraft there to, you know, it's just gone, you know, collateral damage. Whereas some of these other ones, I think if, you know, the, uh, and we saw, it, I think a couple of times where, you know, if a, a, a craft is damaged that they, they bring it back. Like the, wasn't it the Millennium Falcon or, or what of uh, uh, Luke's? Um, his X-Wing. Yeah, his X-Wing. Dagobah's one, but is that the one I'm thinking of? I'm thinking where, yeah, maybe I am. Maybe that's where I'm thinking of. I'm, th- I'm picturing a um, a scene on a, um, God, it must be Hoth. It's got to be on Hoth. Uh, I don't know. I'm picturing a scene where, where Luke and, and uh, Han are talking, and it is a, a um, like an aircraft carrier deck where there's all kinds of, of craft around them and people, mechanics, pilots wandering around and whatever. And it's obvious that there is one machine um, that you know Luke cares about. Oh, I remember. And how about like R two D two? I mean, t- technically R two D two is machine. Uh, he's not a transport machine, but talk about getting invested in in things that you want to see repaired as opposed to you know left behind. So um, when they hauled him out of you know his charred. Oh, okay. Uh, You're thinking. Of, yeah. Of episode. Three. Uh, four, four. yeah, yep. After the Death Star has been destroyed, uh, oh, spoilers! Sorry, are um, <laughs> two during the uh, the dog fights leading up to to Luke destroying the Death Star? He was hit by uh, by, by... X wing bla- or not X wing, but Tie Fighter blaster fire. Yep. And so when they land back on on the, uh, I just forgot the name of the it's, moon. Is it Endor? That their base was it's Endor. Wow. Um, he's really worried about R2 and, uh, and 
So the ground crew says that they don't worry they'll help him. And even C-3PO says, I will donate any parts that I have to, to help restore him. Right. So, you know, and and at least according to the way it appeared those craft, uh, the X-Wing fighters were working, you almost needed R2 to operate them, or at least operate them better. They were certainly designed for an R2 unit. Yes. Yeah, you know, they were, they were yeah, symbiotic. They a lot of navigation yep. and, uh, and other support system functions. Well, so the pilot could, could put the ship where it needs to go and blow things up. And R2 was back there, you know, soldering wires together again to make sure that, you know, when Luke pressed the trigger, something would actually happen. So that, um, you know, and that's, an, you know, there's an interesting one, too, where you've got that um, merger between a craft and a crew, basically. If, you know, Luke being part of the crew, but R2-D2, I know he's a droid. Um, I'm sorry, I'm anthropomorphizing. He's he's more than a droid. That's what they want. I know it. So it worked. Um, But, you know, he's more than just a hunk of machinery. Um, And so there's a relationship there between um, the pilot, the fighter, and then the droid that helps operate it. So... That's an that's an interesting. What else do they have? I'm thinking of like the Naboo transport ships too. That that's I know. I remember um, an interview of George Lucas talking about how do you take a science fiction transport vehicle and then do a prequel and try to imagine older technology than the new technology that you had previously depicted and you know that whole conundrum of okay we had x-wing fighters and and um, those types of you know millennium falcon and now we have to go back in time and create antique cars or whatever in that universe it's like uh, i think they did a good job i do you too. know the other place that they had to do that and it was a difficult process was enterprise yes right yes because they had to to honor the designs that were to come in in the original series and they had to to pay attention to where technology is today and find a way to fit in between that and uh and man that was a trick and then and then coming up with their shuttle pods and, and making those I, work i think they did a lot better job of that in enterprise than they did in the star wars movies because star wars movies it's really just design you don't True. see any real difference in the technology between, like, oh, over the span. Oh, that's a really good point. Whereas is in, in Enterprise, they actually are showing you, yes, we are, whatever the technology is that they're using, you can see it as a downgraded version of the stuff that you've seen in the other shows. Right, and transport technology, transporters yeah. was brand new, so nobody trusted them and everybody preferred shuttlecraft. Right, and they were, and they, yeah, Transporters initially in Enterprise were okay for for non live transport, so they could do foods, they could do uh, utilities and and other equipment, but they couldn't do people. Mm-hmm. And when they finally were able to do people, uh, everyone on the ship was like, huh. "I don't know." The captain was like, "You're not scrambling my molecules, right? Yeah, who wants so to be first? Suddenly depended on it, and then he's like, "Scramble now, right?" Yep. All right. So I have a theory on 
on uh, on why, and I know I'm totally giving George Lucas a cop out on this, but why you didn't see a significant difference in the technologies just in the design. And the theory that, that I pose is that by the time the Star Wars saga is happening, the uh, the the galaxy that they're in, technology has advanced to a point where it's relatively stable. And from from the point, I mean, far earlier than where we see the the two different trilogies happen, up through those trilogies, they have a very stable technology base because they have advanced so far with what's available to them. So what you're seeing, they're almost at a plateau. Yeah, they're they're at a plateau. Mature technology, yeah, mature science behind and so, it. And so what you'll see are primarily uh, basic function changes and and uh, style and fashion changes. You know, I think we have one other thing that might be at play here too. The difference in time between like Star Trek, the original series, or Next Generation and Enterprise was significant, as in perhaps hundred, hundreds of years. Um, whereas the difference between Star Wars, you know, the first three released versus the prequels is one generation. And so if you think, you know, like the cars that I have, you know, parked on the street right now, one generation before, the technology has not changed much, but boy, has the design of it changed. So, you know. Right. And things get more efficient. Right. But and all, the, the and basic technology hasn't changed. And the Naboo transport ship um, might be an example where things get less elegant as time goes on. Because to me, the Naboo you know, silver gleaming thing is gorgeous. You know, like a nineteen forties yellow yeah. ships that they had, and yeah. yeah, they feel more organic. Yeah, they're a more elegant time. Yes. Um, and, so, and, and just you know, the difference, the time span between Enterprise and the original series, a couple hundred is, years. Uh, oh, I just bounced off my microphone. I'm sorry. Um, apparently, there's a microphone in my face. Uh. Um, the the difference, time difference between Enterprise and and uh, the original Star Trek is, I believe, less than one generation. Okay, because I was—it's been a while since I've been through the timeline of Star Trek. Yeah, I think there's more time difference between the original series and the next generation. Yes, than yeah. there is between Enterprise and the original series. Okay. Interesting. So a simple, simple problem of how to get around. <laughs> Um, you know, and, and we haven't, you know, a lot of these the, um, ships we've been talking about truly are kind of local transport. I mean, how do you get from here to there on this planet? Uh, a few of them are how do you get from he- this planet to the ship orbiting above? But that's about as far as they go. And, you know, the whole business of hyperdrive and warp speed and wormholes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, matter of fact, uh, Jeff Sire and I have been talking about... Uh, um, Ring world, and Jeff, the other Jeff, <laughs> um, you're familiar with that series as well. Yes. Uh, and some of the technologies in there, there's a, uh, I don't even know what it's called, advanced super warp drive in that. But there's also these discs. Um, they're they're a lot like uh, transporters, where you you basically step on the disc and you're immediately. They're a lot like flu powder in Harry Potter. <laughs> I think they're closer to Harry Potter than Star Trek. I think you're right, I, because they basically take you from one address to another address within the same, you know, even city, um, and, and but they do it instantly. 
And, you know, looking around, and like I say, anybody who's ever flown lately, the idea of, of taking a step and um, instantly being transported to the nearest, you know, how about just the airport even? I mean, half the time just getting to the airport is a, a journey in and of itself. Sounds pretty darn appealing to me. So, uh, it, and it, it was interesting. My my oldest son was is getting ready to pay off his his first car that he ever bought, basically. And he's like, God, when I finally pay it off, I'll I'll have to, you know, it'll be worn out, and I'll have to buy a new one. I says, Yeah, welcome to the, welcome to being an adult. Welcome to the American way. And I says, But the problem with that too is that people have been going broke or spending their lives trying to acquire transport for millennia. I mean, in the Roman times, people were trying to buy fast horses and good-looking chariots. And so, you know, science fiction takes that uh, the other direction, and and again, in in science future. Um, you know, people are investing heart, soul, resources, whatever, into this idea of getting from one place to another. It's a, it's a basic human requirement, I think. Well, okay, so on the basic human requirement thing, yes, and it's something that we have always done. We've always needed to get from one place to another. The big difference really is how fast can we do it. Right. Yep. And that just keeps going up. Too bad Moore's Law doesn't work in that area. Oh, that would be so cool. Wouldn't that? Yeah. They just, didn't they just, oh no, it failed. They just tried to do a rocket that was supposed to go like seven times the speed of sound. Wasn't that it? Ah, the heck was it? The space it's, shuttle, like in orbit, goes way faster. Yeah, which is why I'm I'm hesitating here because it failed. It was it was some space thingy, supersonic flight. <laughs> Sorry, um, but it, it was uh, it was a rocket. Oh, I should dig this up. Um, the problem with trying to prepare for these podcasts is we never know what we're going to talk about. So it's not like in, like put notes together. Um, but there, it was something that was set to uh, to go off and make some sort of historic something or other, and it failed upon launch, basically. We lost, um, I don't know if it was SpaceX or whatever, but um, that that whole concept behind it was pushing the speed again, you know, making it go faster than uh, the previous generation had. So it is something we keep keep working at, I guess. All right, let's see. Well, we could probably go on forever, or we could probably call it a night. So maybe I'm leaning towards calling it a night, since I am just barely holding it together here from having an all-out <laughs> coughing fit. So anybody have anything uh, they want to add on this topic of, of local transport? No. Uh, you know, I really could go on for a long, long time. But knowing that... Uh, that you're doing a fantastic job of just holding your uh, your voice together. I will just stop right there. Well, we'll we'll, we'll have to um, hold you to those words and and have you back and and uh, continue the conversation, perhaps. I would love that. So, in the meantime, Jeff Gamut, um, where can folks find you on the internet? Well, uh, if people fire up their web browser and go to MacObserver.com, they will find me there, and they will also find you there too. This is true. And I, and I appreciate all the hard work you put in, so thank you very much. Um, you can find me on Twitter at 
uh, let's see, what's my Twitter name? Jay Gamut. And if you want to see what happens in coffee shops, oh gosh, there's a lot of stupid stuff happens in coffee shops. I write about it. Freshbrewedtales.com. And I did a new post, I believe it was yesterday. Yes, you did, and I still can't believe that. I honestly cannot believe that one. Oh, well. With, if the photo wasn't there, it would be hard to believe, wouldn't it? It really would. Yep. And there's your teaser. We're not even going to tell folks what it's all about. Go check out freshbrewedtales.com and find out the inside scoop. There you go. And Jeff, thank you for having me on. And not a problem. Our pleasure. Jeff Sire, where can folks find you on the Internet? Uh, people can follow me on Twitter at, uh, at Bronco Sire, S-Y-E-R, all one word. And uh, or they can contact me through Sci-Fi Tech Talk. There we go. And I, too, can be found on Twitter at Julie Keel, J-U-L-I-E-K-U-E-H-L-K-U-E-H-L. Um, and links to the other podcast blogs and whatever else I've got going on can be found at about.me slash Julie Keel. So that's going to wrap up this episode of Sci-Fi Tech Talk. You can check us out at scifitechtalk.com or follow us on Twitter at Sci-Fi Tech Talk. And, of course, if you have ideas or comments or want to be a guest on the show, um, contact us at scifitechtalk at gmail.com. And we could always use some reviews on iTunes. Um, we're still still fairly new, so whatever, good, bad, or otherwise, we'd sure appreciate some feedback. So that's it for this show, and we'll see you in the future. <laughs>